What's up, Lady Ballers? What's up, guys? How are you guys doing? I'm good. Have you guys been sticking to your New Year's goals? Heck yeah, checking them off left and right. Just yeah. I am. I am. Goals. Wait, so in December, uh, I did the character mile, which is you run one mile every day outside no matter what. No matter what the weather, no matter if it's raining, snowing, freezing, whatever. Wow. That's not going to be a whole... back thing. Did you do that? Did she do that? Yeah. It, uh, Oh, I did not know, but I uh, I wish I remembered the name of the guy who who's does who's do who started the character mile. But I'm gonna try and keep it going for a full year. That's, That's awesome. awesome. You can oh. do it. I wonder. I, it's just a matter if I get hurt. Yeah, wonder, that's true. I wonder though, like, is your mile? Are you? Do you push yourself to run faster each time? Like, do you no. think that you'll get a really good mile time at the end of this? Or so I'm genuinely just doing like it's literally like a cut the excuses and the BS challenge. You know, like no matter how tired I am, I'll trot the mile. I'll do like an 11 minute mile. That's but it's though. the getting outside, how cold it is, how many excuses you want to make for it. You know, so it's that. been, and it's like eight minutes out of the day, you know, yeah. or nine minutes out of the day. So I'm, like some nights I do it, I'll do it literally at like 1135 <laughs> before I go to bed. If I oh forgot for the whole day. Oh my gosh. So it's been Everyone's got 10 I'm minutes. I'm going to try it. That, that is actually time. really cool, and I remember, like Shannon was saying, Abby Wambach did that, but I don't think she did. Did she do a mile per day? I think, I she, think she just ran every day. I think yeah. I, I think hers are, like, different. It's really but, crazy. Uh, it's getting it. a little cold this month, though, you know? <laughs> well, it can't get worse, I don't think. I think it will only get better, right, from here on out. Mm, winter here. just started, yeah. like, today. <laughs> like, a few weeks ago. <laughs> Everyone Why thinks that everyone thinks that December's like done. Winter, it's it only just not. beginning at the end of the yeah. month. Guys, like, it, guys, in my head, winter starts in September and then ends in like February. You don't realize how bad, how much work. Like I was like in December, I was like, this isn't so bad. I mean, granted, I ran it in snow boots some days because it was snowing, <laughs> but I was like, the temperature isn't like hurting my face. Yeah, but it's, it's hurting. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is wild. I know it's it's interesting. I feel like it's harder when you're not in the city too, because you're you're not forced to walk. But my goal is to walk more each month than I did last year, so we'll see. Well, Shannon, what's that going to be? A, it's a ten miles a day. A marathon a day. <laughs> it's ten miles a day, and it's tough. My wow. toes are freezing because I went wow. this morning. We'll that see. Is crazy. What about you, Carl? Honestly, I haven't made any fitness goals yet. I, I, I really want my, – my one thing is I just want to be active every day. Like, I just want to keep showing up in some way, shape, or form. But I don't have any fitness goals right now. I just want to, like, learn something new every day. That's what I've That's actually cool. – really, like, want to do that. And I actually got um, something called the Master Class for Christmas, and you pretty much take, like, these 15-minute classes. That's from, awesome. And it could be Ooh. in anything. It could be on putting from Tiger Woods. Like, wow. Wow. So yeah. they're so interesting. Yeah, and even like if you go on TEDx or TEDTalk.com, you can watch like little bits and you mm -hmm. learn something new every day. And it's, I don't know, it's a little thing that I'm going to try awesome. and keep up with. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Very cool. Nice. Well, hopefully we all stick to our goals. Let's check in in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon's toes are going to be falling off. I Alana's out of my toes. Alana's going to be running in like a four minute mile. You're going to learn how to putt really good. I'm going to be the best putter around. <laughs> In the whole world. There's a throwing, a throwing a ball master class for you. Yeah, you should take that. <laughs> you should definitely I, take that. I will work on that and get back to you guys. 
Um, well, guys, uh, we have a very cool guest on today, right? Yeah, so we're speaking with Grant Wall, and guys, he's like the a really well-known sports yeah. journalist, and I remember the first time we came into the soccer world at, with Soccer Girl Probs, he was like really good on Twitter, and we always came across his tweets. Um, he still crushes Twitter. Oh, yeah, he really does. He, he's all over the place, too. He's working with um, the men's and women's side of, of soccer, and basketball too and all that and it's really cool to keep up with him on um especially twitter and instagram yeah, yeah i just read that he's in his journalism career he's reported 12 ncaa basketball tournaments eight world cups and four olympic games that's crazy it really that is, is amazing that's a lot and and he was an author of like a best-selling book about david beckham right yep yeah new york he, times bestseller really done, cool He's done quite a few amazing things that mm-hmm. um, everyone needs to check out. Yes. I'm excited to hear some insight about his interviews. He's interviewed so many players, so he's got to yeah. have some good stuff. Yes, definitely. All right, so I'm going to let him in now. Enjoy, guys. Hi, Grant. I'm coming. Here I am. Hey, how's it going? Hi. Hi, Grant. Good, good to see you guys. You or too. everyone but Carly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, no, everything's good. I'm so excited you guys approached me to do it because you're going to be great guests on my podcast. I'm, I'm very proud to be, I think, one of the few guy guests on uh, your podcast. Yeah, we're so excited. I, I mean, it's so funny because our paths have crossed at so many important events like World Cups and, and things like that. And we've seen you in passing, I feel like, in yeah. like bars or certain events and, and things like that. But uh, it's it's so awesome to get to talk to you. And you're going to have such a unique perspective on just women's soccer in general, so I feel like our listeners are going to love it. I also think we're about to get our dogs wailing for a second. That's going to stop (laughs) soon. Oh, my gosh. So uh, this is uh, Zizu. Oh, my gosh. Zizu's the brown one. Coco is the black one. Coco. Coco doesn't wail. Coco's much tougher than Zizu. Oh, one one has the attachment issues. (laughs) This guy, the boy. Um, so I'll have to look up the dogs on Instagram to see them. (laughs) They're Coco Zizu on they're Coco Zizu on Instagram. C O C O Z I Z O U. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. After Zidane. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so I got to name the boy, and my wife's uh, half French, so um, uh, Coco is named for Coco Chanel. I love it. Um, and Zizu's the soccer guy. We, We are. Goal is at some point when Zidane is in New York for some summer preseason tournament to get a photo of Zizou and Zizou together, and that would be like our holiday card that year. Legendary. <laughs> Let's just jump right into it. Tell us about your podcast first off. So I I started football with Grant Wall um, in May of 2020, and the whole idea is to do two really interesting podcast interviews a week with someone from the soccer community. And I really try and cast a wide net. And so it's got men's soccer figures, women's soccer figures, people from the U.S., people from outside the U.S. Sometimes it's media members, sometimes it's players, coaches, just anyone I feel who's interesting out there. And the whole idea is for it to be not a soundbite interview, like some quick thing, because that's so much of what media is at this point. 
And so I wanted these interviews to sort of, it's kind of like your podcast too, be like um, real sit down interviews where you have some time to get a sense of what someone's really like and talk about some important things. And to me, that's always reminded me of the magazine interviews I did when I started out as a journalist back in the mid nineties. And I just feel like it's, you can get on a deeper level with somebody when you talk to them for 30 to 40 minutes or longer. Um, and I think people want that today just because there's so much quick hit soundbite stuff. And I understand why the media industry has moved in that direction, but I think there's an, a demand too now for, for more length and, and quality and really getting to know somebody. I feel like at a lot of events, we get like five minutes with someone and you can only get so much out of them and they don't really get to know you either. But I think because of COVID, one of the bright sides of it is that with podcasting, a lot more people are available to speak and have more time to talk. And it's so cool to get to know people in the soccer world more. It is. And we have a really cool soccer community in the United States with a lot of personalities in it. And I just want to make people more aware of that as this community grows. And I love the fact that it's growing. I mean, like, there's so many more fans of American soccer today than there are, there were like 15, 20 years ago. And sometimes I have to remind myself that stories that I covered, like the 99 Women's World Cup win or the U.S. men getting to the 2002 World Cup quarterfinals, those were amazing stories that very few of the fans today lived through because they weren't necessarily paying that close of attention to, you know, at that, at that time. So there's actual value I'm finding in telling in detail some of the stories from like the early 2000s about soccer and the people involved because all these fans that we have now for soccer are kind of hearing those in detail for the first time in some cases. Even yeah. when uh, when COVID happened and they played a bunch of the throwback games from the previous Women's World Cups, I, I people on Twitter, it was like they were watching it for the first time ever, which honestly probably was the case for most people. And I didn't really put two and two together that so many fans are, you know, have just recently become fans that those stories that were told, if they missed it, they, they deserve to hear them in, in depth again, you know? I mean, that's a little bit why I, I did this podcast series that has recently come out on Freddie Adu, because here was something that was a giant story in American soccer in 2004 that I covered at the time that people certainly followed, and it became this sort of mainstream interest in this 14-year-old professional player. But in the year 2020, 2021, a lot of soccer fans today didn't follow that story. And so they've been riveted by this Freddie Adu story and what happened to him and the human aspects of it. It's reminded me to like go back maybe and, and devote more time in the future to telling some of these stories in detail more. Like a, a year and a half ago, for example, at Sports Illustrated, we did a six-part uh, podcast series called Throwback on – the 1991 U.S. Women's World Cup winning team, which got less attention at the time than obviously the 99ers did. 
but there were some amazing stories and some of them included people like Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy as teenagers. So we got them, but then there were people like Michelle Akers and April Heinrichs and people who, you know, in some cases like April Heinrichs didn't get a ton of attention back in those days. And I, I just think there's, I think they're fascinating stories. I think there's a demand for it. So I hope to keep doing stuff like that. I yeah, think that's, that's incredible. And I just was thinking about how amazing social media has been to make it more accessible for a lot of people to hear the stories, you know, like, I feel like I just, w can you imagine if the 90, the 99ers even had social media during that time or just more media coverage in general? Like it's truly amazing what you're doing and trying to, put this all on the platform that is actually so easy for people to get access to and listen to these incredible historic stories that need to be heard. So I think that's incredible. Do you think that um, you use Twitter or Instagram a lot to get those, the word out about your, your longer pieces? Yeah. I mean, I probably have a bigger audience on Twitter than on Instagram. It's a decent size on Instagram, but I got on Twitter, I think in 09, um, fairly early on and built a, a good audience there. And as you guys have found, like it, it's, it's a great audience to have. And, um, and it's for me over the years, it's become not just us based, but, but globally based as us soccer has maybe gotten a bit more respect internationally. And I, I mean, for as many sort of, negative aspects as there are of Twitter or social media, and there's plenty of them. There's some amazingly positive things that come out of it. And, and that's why I've stayed on and been so active over the years, because not only does it give me a chance to put my own work out there in front of an audience that maybe hadn't seen it as much before, but just from an intake perspective, it's great to keep up with the global soccer community and what's going on and the good work that's being done in it and to make connections with people, you know, like whether it's, and there's such a long list now of people I've met through Twitter that that alone is, you know, a reason to, to use Twitter. And I, and I love what that's brought to the soccer community here. Totally. I feel like for me personally, it's always the first place I look when I want to know like a score of a game or some sort of information about sports and the news in general. Um, I'm not sure about you guys, but I really do. It's like I don't go anywhere else, which is like Twitter, you know, trending stories, all that. It's a great place for journalism um, to, to live, really. So I we've think that's We've awesome. been following you on Twitter for a long time. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. That's um, how we, we actually like found out about you when we first started soccer all prods and got into the you know the sharing and stories about the women's game we found your account and we were like this guy is so legit and we've enjoyed following you for what 10 years guys like we've been doing this for 10 years now mm -hmm. um congrats so yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're old but congrats on doing it for 10 years not congrats on following me on twitter <laughs> um but like it's been fun to see your guys rise as well and and i think people who are legit folks like I, I think on uh, Twitter's a, a real opportunity to to be able to show that to to a, a pretty big audience and there's different things that different platforms are good for as you know like you mm -hmm. know like Twitter's 
different from like a podcast format, uh, video different. And, and you guys have figured out like too, like there's things that work best on different platforms. And, and so what Twitter can be great about in terms of timeliness and, and importance and brevity and, and all of that, um, you know, podcasts, I think, are, you know, what we're doing right here is a little bit like, I don't know, smart talk radio, in my opinion, I hope. And like a narrative podcast series, to me, is that can be like a really intimate thing because it's coming into your ears. I don't want to get too crazy here, but like, I do think like <laughs> podcasts are, podcasts are a really cool platform for, for doing a bunch of different things, including storytelling. Yep. I know I'm I'm I probably listen to like four hours of podcasts a day I've been listening to yours the football with um Grand Wall for a while now and I just started your other podcast yesterday and it's so good the American Prodigy like I was getting like goosebumps like it's amazing and it's so well done do you edit it yourself I am not good at technical stuff <laughs> so <laughs> if I'm being honest um so Blue Wire Podcast, I did the Freddie Adu series with, and uh, I worked with a producer, Harry Swardak, who I worked with at Sports Illustrated for that 91 Women's World Cup podcast, and I knew he'd be amazing. And, like, it, it's incredible how much effort they've put into editing to make it sound great, you know, and he even commissioned, like, an original music score, uh, where he was into like, he wanted it to be like Washington DC area house music from the early 2000s when Freddie Adu was like making that's his cool. debut. And like, that's awesome, but it's also way out of my expertise <laughs> level. So I just kind of let Harry do his thing on on the production side of it and and just try to do what I can best as much as possible. And for me, that was convincing all of the people who agreed to interviews to do them and give it a lot of time, including Freddie, which was a process because he said no at first. He had always said no to doing interviews about his career with everybody, including like ESPN 30 for 30. Wow. And so like I had to kind of convince him to say yes and change his mind for this podcast. And I'm glad he said yes, because it's a much better podcast series as a result. Mm -hmm. Do you have any main takeaways from, from doing that podcast with him? You know, I do. I mean, I have always been fascinated sort of with our cultural obsession with sports prodigies mm -hmm. and, and what kind of impact that has on, on teenagers. You know, you guys had Olivia Moultrie on, mm -hmm. on your podcast not too long ago. And, and that's a great get, by the way, because I don't think she does interviews typically. <laughs> um, but, like, there's some similarities, obviously, between her and Freddie Adu. Both became pro at 13, both signed with Nike, both had the same agent group, Wasserman. Mm -hmm. And so that's really interesting to me. And, you know, I back in the day at Sports Illustrated, I covered half soccer, half basketball. That was before they had enough interest in a full-time soccer writer, which finally happened a few years later. So I did our first LeBron James cover story when he was 17 years old in wow. 2002 yeah. as like a high school student in Ohio. And 
it was only a year later that I did my first Freddie Adu magazine story. And I do think I explore this a little bit in the Adu series. Mm-hmm. I do think how the response to the, Le- the LeBron cover was so positive and he made it and he's actually exceeded his expectations somehow <laughs> over the years. I do think it had an impact on how I covered Freddie. Now, Freddie was 13, so he was actually four years younger, which I learned was a big difference in terms of, is this person gonna make it or not? Mm-hmm. And I do think, looking back on it now, I don't think my, like, my writing about Freddie Adu back in those days was irresponsible. Like, but I do think I probably wrote about him too much. Like I did five magazine stories on Freddie Adu in a two year period. And I'm not someone who thinks like the media coverage should be like the main blame point for like why Freddie didn't fulfill his expectations. But I think there were a lot of different factors that went into it. And so that's part of what this series has been about in talking to all the figures again and in getting Freddie's sense of like what it was like to have the founder of Nike, Phil Knight, say publicly that he could be bigger than Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, and LeBron James were for their sports about a 14-year-old kid who had never played a professional game. It's crazy. It, it's crazy. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure on a kid. So much. To try and fulfill that. And I feel like that was probably different back then, but I think a lot of kids that age probably feel that pressure to to achieve what their parents and their coaches and everyone thinks they can and wants them to do. Just like Olivia now, it's so much pressure on someone. Yeah, and, and I think it's probably a good thing. Like, she hasn't done that many interviews. Mm-hmm. I'm glad she did one with you. Like, <laughs> that it, it's, I, I do think at a certain age, like she needs to be focusing on soccer yeah. at, at this point. And, and Freddie wasn't really allowed to do that because MLS was in a much different place back in 04. It only had 10 teams. It was in danger of folding. And they were kind of desperate to have someone be a mainstream star. And it happened to be a 14-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. Do you th- I mean, you might discuss it in the podcast later, but do you think if he never played in the MLS, if he played overseas, it could have been different? I do. Um, you know, I think if Freddie had signed with, like, Ajax in the Netherlands and been part of their academy, they had dealt with kids his age before and, and talent, and it would have been a more protective environment. Mm-hmm. Um I also think MLS is in a totally different place now. Like if he had come out today, mm-hmm. there's more established academies in MLS. Uh, it's a more protective environment. The league isn't in danger of folding. You know, soccer's in a different place in America at this point. And so, yeah. Um, the, the one sort of saving grace for me at least is that Freddie Adu is from talking to him. People, maybe sad that he didn't achieve what they thought he could, but he's not himself a sad story. Like he's not bitter. He's, he's doing okay. And, and there's something actually kind of inspirational. He's about to join his first professional club in two years. He just signed with a third division team in Sweden and he just Mm -hmm. wants to play because he loves the game. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. I also find that 
it's so interesting that you guys are doing a story now with him because I feel like he can look back at his past and see it from a different perspective rather than like in the moment when his answers could be completely, you know, different. I, I don't know. It's so interesting to me. Like he's removed himself from what he was back then and he can speak to you freely about how he feels, you know, cause it's in the past. And I think that's so cool. I can't, I can't wait to listen to it. I, I, I'm sure I, I feel like I would absolutely love it. Um, but yeah, I just find that that's really interesting and it's amazing what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, like, I don't know what your experience is in kind of like media stuff because like in what you're doing on your podcast is what I'm doing on my podcast. We're all, you know, in that sense, we're all journalists interviewing people. Um, but from my perspective, like the pressures in media over the last several years have made it a bit more difficult to do really high quality, ambitious stuff that you take a lot of time on. Mm -hmm. And I, I never want to stop doing those types of projects but you also need to find a way to make it sustainable. And so, so much traditional media was connected to advertising and, you know, Google and Facebook took it all. And so places like Sports Illustrated, where I was for 23 and a half years until this past summer, are really trying to find their way, like under new ownership about what can work. But I know for me, like I probably feel like at this point I need to be associated moving forward with like subscriptions. And that's asking a lot of people even to pay a small amount for for something, but you but you want to give them the quality that allows that to happen. So, you know, like I just want right now to be doing quality things like the Freddie Adu stuff while still doing like my twice a week interview podcast where I can stay in the thick of things and mm -hmm. talk to interesting people about the news and, and show that I'm still very much engaged in, in what I've been doing with this soccer community over the last couple of decades. I think those longer in-depth projects are, there's a space that needs to be filled with those because, you know, just the way we consume things is like, all right, consume that. What's the next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And and you realize that when you get sucked into a great show or you get sucked into a great book series or podcast series that focus on the, you know, talking about the same thing for multiple episodes, you forget how much you enjoy the storytelling over a little bit of a longer period of time and not just, you know, the casual conversation that you consume and then you're ready for the next one. So I, I love that. I think that that's, you know, something that separates you because, it's not easy to tell a story like that and the amount that you have to invest like as a as a journalist i can only imagine the time money and effort you've put in to tell stories or to you know write the book on beckham that you did like that's not a quick project by any means <laughs> it's not but i guess what i've sort of learned in the last probably since i did my first book on beckham's first two years in la that it's good to get out of your comfort zone and and do things that are maybe new for me writing a book getting outside of sports illustrated showing i could do it um and there is a real reward sometimes that you don't even anticipate so essentially i reported this beckham book over two years in 07 08 and then took six months off to write it 
and um, it became a, a New York Times bestseller. I got inside a team more deeply than any team I've ever covered before because I was always around, even in the bad times, not just the good. And it got crazy to the point where like Landon Donovan was the most popular US player, but David Beckham joined his team in LA and there was like star tension there. And I ended up telling stuff to Landon about him and his own team that he didn't even know. Like one very crazy story being that when Beckham get, came to the, the galaxy, Donovan gave up the captain's armband and said publicly, this was my decision. When my reporting actually showed that it wasn't, that Alexi Lawless, who had been the Galaxy GM, had gone to Landon and said, uh, let him be the captain, you be the star. But Alexi didn't tell Landon, as I learned, that David Beckham's own people had gone to Alexi saying David wants to be captain. Wow. wow. I never and heard so, that before. Some drama. But this, so, but this is That's crazy. That's what really happens behind the scenes. So I learned in this book, like a lot of the stuff that gets said publicly is just completely missing the story of what's mm. happening inside the team. And then when I was the one to notify, to tell Landon, here's the actual story about Beckham's people going to the galaxy and wanting David to become captain and how it eventually came to you. His reaction was like, oh my God. <laughs> and, and I've never really been in a position quite like that before where I had gotten inside a team that much. And so a lot of my interviews, including with Landon and other people inside that Galaxy team, like the first 10 to 15 minutes, I would explain to them what I had learned about their own team that they didn't know. And then we spent the rest of the interview with them telling me stuff that they knew that I didn't know. That's crazy. And over a two-year reporting period, you build up all this stuff and you learn things maybe even out of order chronologically, but then you write the book and put it all chronological and it really came together. And I, I, I feel bad that they were a terrible team the first two years Beckham was there. That was the, <laughs> when I was writing the book and, and Beckham has taken like 10 years to finally speak to me again, even though <laughs> he, was, he, he has uh, started to. But like, I was just reporting what his teammates were saying. Mm -hmm. yeah. And would you, yeah, go ahead. Well, would you say that you, you're not afraid of, you know, controversy? Like you want to tell the story, you want to tell the, the right story. Um, and I would imagine like, that's kind of scary sometimes, but like, would you say that you really stick with your guns? You're like, I'm going to do the, I'm, gonna, I'm a journalism, I'm going to, uh, a journalist, I'm going to tell the right story from what I'm hearing, you know? It's, you try and do that because that's the job. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's tough sometimes. I mean, you know, like I kind of wish I had been able to spend all five years back in Visit the Galaxy for the book, but it was just the first two when they were bad, not when they were good and winning titles. That's just sort of the way things were. But like when you agree to write a book about the, like the first two years Beckham was there, you don't know where the story and the truth is going to take you. Mm -hmm. For all I knew, they were the, the Galaxy were going to win championships those first two years. But it was crazy where it did sort of go. Um, 
And I knew as I was writing it, Beckham's probably not going to ever speak to me again. And I'd had a good relationship <laughs> with him. Um, I'd done two big magazine stories on him over the years, had you know good experiences both times. And I don't think he read the book. I think he was told what was in the book, but like I had to sort of accept that that was potentially going to be the situation and just make sure that everything I wrote was true. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that yeah. process of talking to enough people and verifying everything was a really long and drawn out one. I bet you he read it. <laughs> <laughs> he said he didn't, but he did. Did he, did he send you an angry text after? Or did <laughs> you know, it's, on Twitter? Just a bunch of memes, angry memes. What, what was interesting was that, um, you know, David did, you know, everything got turned around at the Galaxy in 2008. They fired Alexi and Ruth Hullett, who was the coach. They brought in Bruce Arena. They started winning championships. Donovan and Beckham had sort of a kumbaya moment after my book came out where they had to make peace, and they did. Um, And so I remember covering the finals when Beckham's Galaxy won. And after the games, like both times, I think, he would sort of stare me down in I the was game press conference. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like shrugging my shoulders, like, what is, what, what, what is this about? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So it's kind of amusing in retrospect, but like, I never wished him any ill will. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's a good I guy. Don't know if I can handle dirty looks I from Dave. <laughs> I'll take any, any, any looks look. I can get. Yeah, come yeah. on. That's crazy. The, the the most comical moment, which probably wasn't in the moment, was there was like a group interview or scrum around Beckham one time. And anytime another journalist, not me, asked a question, he would give them this thoughtful response. And then anytime I asked a question, it would get like a two word answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I guess this is how it's going to be. That's amazing. It's funny because I feel like you don't hear the drama in men's soccer as much. I feel like people focus a lot on it in in women's, but it's cool to hear that side of it on the men's, I guess. There was so much on that LA Galaxy team. I mean, and I do remember like over the years doing stories like, you know, the whole Hope Solo story and the 2007 Women's World Cup and sort of what happened inside that U.S. team after that. You know, I had a really intense experience in 08 before those Olympics talking to Hope, talking to Carly Lloyd, who had supported her inside the U.S. team, talking to people sort of on the other side inside the team. And and one of the big kind of storylines that came out of that that was in that magazine story, I think, was should women's sports be viewed differently than men's sports? And I think there, in the end, was a feeling that when Pia Sunhaga came in as the U.S. coach for that 2008 Olympics, she brought Hope back into the team, and she said, is she the best goalkeeper? Yes, so she needs to be here. And you may not like her, but, you know, and and they ended up winning the gold medal, Carly Lloyd, scores the winning goal in the final and I don't know I, I thought that was interesting and I'm sure you guys you guys have dealt with this topic for a long time you know like this gets back to Anson Dorrance at the University of North Carolina you know with 
coaching men is different from coaching women, blah, blah, blah. He's done both. He's had a ton of success. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting topic, but I also don't, I don't know if there's that much of a difference, or I think there's less of a difference these days coaching women than coaching men, but there's still obviously some differences. Yeah. Or I would say, someone asked us that question too in an interview. And I'm like, I also think there's just as much of a difference between coaching one men's team and coaching another. Like you are always mm-hmm. going to get a survey of different personalities and, and all that. So it's kind of redundant for someone to say, you know, Oh, do you have to coach them different? Like you technically from any team to team, you should, you should as a coach be adapting to the field of personalities that you have and the way they're going to respond to things. So I always think that's such an interesting uh, question. People ask us that a lot. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. And the best coaches that I've covered are the ones who are adaptable to whatever situation they're in or coming into. And there's a ton of variability within the men's game, within the women's game, you know, and and one reason Bruce Arena was successful with the LA Galaxy was he came in and got the two stars, Beckham and Donovan, on the same page, got him in the same room, had the uncomfortable conversation, and they moved forward. Mm-hmm. I have a question too, because we have um, a lot of listeners who are interested in, in staying connected in soccer in all types of ways. And, and sports journalism is a topic that you know people have asked us about. How did you get into it? Um, and yeah, I guess just what draws you to the space and what do you find the most rewarding about it? So... I got a gift subscription to Sports Illustrated magazine for Christmas when I was like nine years old from my parents. And I would read it cover to cover every week. I kept getting the gift, thankfully, every year. <laughs> and I grew up in Kansas, um, in the Kansas City area. And once I realized that I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, um, which I realized pretty early on, um, I literally decided in high school, I want to write for Sports Illustrated. And I told people. And like the general response was like, good luck. And, um, and you then- You manifested the hell out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so I get to college. My whole family had gone to the University of Kansas. I got financial aid, went to Princeton. And- They didn't have a journalism degree there, but they had a school paper. I took some great seminars, writing seminars with prominent people, um, great writers like David Remnick, who runs The New Yorker now. And so I was able to get some amazing recommendation letters for like an entry-level job at Sports Illustrated when I was a senior in college. And so that's what I was offered. I, I started out as a fact checker, which is not a glamorous job. You're basically given one story a week that you have to verify that everything's true. And if, you know, the only way you get noticed is if you screw up. (laughs) And so what it is also though, it was a foot in the door to do some writing. And I got to New York um, the fall after my senior year of college. And I said to myself, I'm gonna give myself three years. If I'm not a full-time writer after three years, uh, I'm going to look for writing work at some you know, newspapers. And thankfully, I ended up being a full-time writer at Sports Illustrated after one year. So cool. 
Um, so lots of good memories from those days. I mean, like, like it was crazy because the internet, there really wasn't any sort of web presence for Sports Illustrated even then. And so it was all about this once a week print magazine and competing to get good stories in there. And uh, just did a ton of traveling. I covered basketball, I covered soccer. I got a big break at the 98 World Cup on the men's side. Uh, all the other writers had gone home, and so they let me write the big story on the final on deadline. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then the next year was the 99 Women's World Cup, which I covered from start to finish. It became this cultural phenomenon. And it kind of set things up for the next many years of a mix of, like, telling really interesting feature stories but also doing news coverage at a high level, hopefully, of the biggest events. But I was so spent emotionally and physically after the World Cup final in 99, <laughs> I remember, <laughs> oh, my God, after the penalties, I remember sneaking into the team party after the final and wanting to try and get some kind of color. And the, the main thing I was looking for was that Michelle Akers had been just an absolute legend during that tournament. And she had gone out in the final with a concussion and heat stroke. And so she wasn't available for post-game interviews. And so I was like, I'm gonna get Michelle Akers. And like, she was at the party and, I, and she knew me. And like, she didn't like try to kick me out. She actually wanted to talk, so. Um, <laughs> It was other people at U.S. Soccer who wanted to kick me out. But, <laughs> but, like, I ended up getting a great scene with Michelle Akers and in this, you know, kind of victorious legend moment. And, like, I remember piecing together what had happened during the penalty kicks and how much drama there was in selecting who was going to take it and how they had Brandy Chastain at the end, but only if she'd take it with her left foot, which was her off foot, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> and then it becomes this iconic moment and cover story and it's this like legendary, you know, iconic photograph of Chastain on her knees after the winning kick. And I, I wrote that night overnight. I had a 9 a.m. Eastern deadline. I was up all night. And I remember filing the story that morning. And I like was in a hotel room and I just broke down crying. Like I couldn't handle I couldn't handle like at that point just what the whole thing had been. And I was glad I was young. I was still in my twenties and could pull it off. But it was just such a like a, a challenge, I guess. I, I mean, I found memories looking back at it now. It's kind of a basket case at the time. <laughs> I was going to say, I would have been, be. I would have been in a state of delirium <laughs> trying to write that final story. <laughs> Sh Shannon, um, she made like this artwork of Brandy Chastain with, on the cover of Sports Illustrated, right, Shannon? Oh yeah. Where? You I think it's in my basement. I should. I'll send it to you after. Yeah, that took me like 24 hours. I think I started crying at the end of that. <laughs> Brandy, that, classic. That is so incredible that you were able to to cover all of those amazing moments for women's soccer. Mm -hmm. And it just got me thinking, like, who is your favorite female player that you've ever interviewed? Oh, wow. Thankfully, I've interviewed a ton of people over the years. I've always thought that generally 
the the players on the U.S. women's national team are better interviews than on the men's. And there's exceptions, obviously. But, like, I, I feel like the 99ers were just, like, pioneering Mount Rushmore, where, like, you happen to have, like, just this amazing collection of people who are all fascinating in different ways. Um, you know, like, for the Women's World Cup titles in 2015 and 19, there was a, a younger generation that I enjoyed getting to know and and talk to. So, like, you know, Carly Lloyd, the 2015 title was hers, essentially, in, in, in terms of, like, the standout star. And so a lot of good memories talking to her, even in L.A. a couple of days after winning for a cover story just about her journey over the years. Um, and then Megan Rapinoe has always just been an amazing interview, but, like, she has become even more of an activist mm -hmm. over the last 10 years. And so I can remember, I can remember doing a magazine feature on her, before, like right as she was coming out. Like, it's crazy for me to think now that there was a time when Megan Rapinoe was not out. Yeah. Like, when you, when you listen to her now, but, um, and then, you know, even covering the, the 2019 tournament and in telling that team's story, um, where, yes, they won for the second time in a row, and yes, they were pretty dominant during the entire tournament. But looking back at the three- to four-year journey, and you guys know this, like, there was a, a part between 2015 and 2019, especially 2016-17, when there were issues on that yeah. team. Yeah. And, and, like, you know, like, this gets back to what we were talking about with telling the story and not and not fearing some people not being happy with it, you know? Like, the fact is, some of the veteran players tried to get Jill Ellis removed at one point. Mm -hmm. and, and that's part of the story. It can't not be. At least it shouldn't be. Um, yeah. and, and so, like, telling that, but also telling how they got when she was going to stay, Ellis, like how they moved past that and got done what they needed to get done to put themselves in a position to win this tournament in 2019. And is Jill Ellis not my biggest fan? No, she is not. But like, I have a ton of respect for anyone who can win two straight World Cup titles in what is a very challenging job. When did you learn to just like let go go of or maybe you were never like this but were, did you ever like have it always in the back of your head to kind of people please and then you finally just had a moment where you were like I need to entirely not give a crap about yeah. <laughs> how anyone responds to this because I'm just going to actually tell it how it is I mean I do think there's a balance you know and I think it's important if you want to be a respected journalist if you're going to put out news that you know someone's not going to like mm -hmm. even if it's true to put it in in context, mm -hmm. and and not try and you know, so no cheap shots. Mm -hmm. um, and what I've learned over the years is if there's someone on my beat, which is soccer, that I know I'm going to be covering for a while, and I know I'm going to write something that they're not going to like, I'll be the one to give them the heads up, so that they hear That's it good, from yeah. me, not 
from somewhere else. And I will give them the opportunity if they just want to scream at me for 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Because what I found is obviously the bedrock is you've got to be right. You can't be reporting things that aren't true. Mm-hmm. But you need to like, you need to be fair with what you're writing. But in my experience, if you give someone the chance to vent, and I don't fire back, I just basically listen, then typically that person will feel like they've had a chance to say their piece and they'll still talk to you moving forward. Um, It doesn't always work that way, but generally that's the case. And I found that people respect that and I continue to respect them and they continue to respect me. It's a good way to go about it. I would have never thought of that. I mean, the lesson for that for me was right before the 99 World Cup, Tony DeChico, who was the coach, who later became, you know, the late Tony DeChico, just terribly sad. I miss Tony all the time. I worked with him at Fox. Um, but he screamed at me for like 20, 30 minutes <laughs> for something I wrote. It was in Hershey, Pennsylvania. They were playing like a pre-World Cup tune-up friendly. And and I knew he would be unhappy with what I wrote. I basically just let him yell at me. And we ended up like 20 years later, you know, working together and laughing about it over dinner. But in the moment, it, it's a little more charged. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> That's awesome. So what do you, what do you think of the, the team now, the women's team? Any thoughts? I mean, Black Code to me is very impressive so far. Um, and, and it's less about me thinking that than everyone I talk to who he works with feels that way, mm-hmm. uh, like players. Uh, and so I've certainly had some off-the-record conversations over the years with other coaches of that, about other coaches of that team where players were unhappy. And you don't hear that mm-hmm. from players right now about Black uh, Obviously, he still needs to win, and so that's going to be the ultimate determinant of how he's viewed. But the process that he goes about things with is is being received well by the players. I'm curious to see if that continues once yeah. he starts cutting some veterans. Maybe <laughs> true. <laughs> maybe that'll change it. <laughs> It'll stir the pot for sure. <laughs> but but like, in Kate Markgraf, I think made a good hire with him. And and she's someone who I think is appears to be doing uh, a good job in her role as, as you know kind of the person in charge of the women's side mm-hmm. at U.S. Soccer. Um, so you know, like it's crazy though because you never expect. Like I was there in the 2016 Olympics in the quarterfinal against Sweden. And nobody expected the U.S. would lose that game. They were the World Cup champions. They had played pretty well that tournament. And they had a bad game, and they were out. And so that can always happen in one game. But, I mean, I look at at this team. Had, I, I'm going to assume the Olympics will happen this next year. Hopefully, yeah. And... I guess I'm curious to see how a veteran like Megan Rapino, who's barely played this entire year, if she's able to 
kind of get it going one last time, mm-hmm. then will she get the opportunity to do that? To some extent, Carly Lloyd, even though I think she might have had a more prominent role if the Olympics had been this past summer, mm-hmm. since Alex Morgan was going to be just coming back from giving birth. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see which, which young players, like right now, I feel like Sam Mewis might be the best U.S. player and maybe in the world, like right near the top when you see how she's doing, like dominating every game just about and scoring more goals than I was expecting for City. Um, Rose Lavelle is someone who I thought could become the best player in the world, and I think she's still capable of that, but she hasn't really established herself at club level in the NWSL or mm-hmm. over in England yet. And so I think she's someone who needs the right coach to believe in her and put her in the right position to succeed. And I think Wacko can do that, wants to do that. Um, so, it, I mean, it's a fascinating team to cover, and there's so much internal competition. It's such yeah. a crazy thing about this U.S. women's team where sometimes there's not that much competition externally, but the internal competition is off the charts, and that shapes them more than anything yeah that's so I true i wish they would do a documentary on that like you know how uh hbo always follows the different nfl mm-hmm. like that would be so much fun to see like the real in- ends of that whole team because there's yes. so much competition in, in within that team so many there good is. players and usually I, I feel like with him maybe it's not gotten to that point but with pia and with jill i feel like there was definitely favorites which i think you're gonna have on it with any coach but i think it was a little bit more um, of an issue so I don't know we'll see hopefully the Olympics happen and, and we get to see them win again yeah I mean they're just such a dominant team and like for me by the end of the 2019 World Cup I kind of I think I did a column on this about how like yes the rest of the world is getting better mm-hmm. but so is the U.S. women's team and, and like I don't I think it's possible that the gap actually isn't getting smaller yeah. They've won the last two World Cups. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, it's it, it's kind of crazy. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll see in future World Cups if the gap does get smaller. Yep. Time will tell. Well, Grant, thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully we'll see you in person sometime in 2021. <laughs> I would like Thank that. I want to see more people in person. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Right? <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Grant.